Welcome to the Get Over Yourself podcast. This is Brad Kearns. I cover health, fitness, peak performance, personal growth, relationships, happiness, and longevity. So slow down, take a deep breath, take a cold plunge, and pursue your competitive goals in all areas of life with great intensity and passion, but release your attachment to the outcome and learn to have fun along the way. That's the theme of the show. Here we go. Here's a quick thank you to our sponsors. They make this show possible and the tremendous production behind it online and in audio. Thank you, wildideabuffalo.com. Grass-fed, locally raised on the Great Plains for the last 130,000 years. Quit eating that junk food feedlot cattle and get some quality meat into your life. And thank you, DNAfit.com. Cutting-edge genetic testing, delivering customized diet and exercise recommendations for your peak performance. Use the discount code GOY30. Get over yourself. Integro Probiotics make this fabulous liquid probiotic high potency. It's called Flourish, so your microbiome can flourish. Gut health is everything. Get started. Visit entegrohealth.com and Tribali Foods. Pre-made, creatively flavored hamburger and chicken patties. When you're in a rush, drop one down, fry it up. It's delicious. T-R-I-B-A-L-I. And Almost Heaven. That's the name of my sauna. These are beautiful home-use saunas made of real wood, shipped to your door, easy to assemble, and then you are rocking. That's right, I'm going from chest freezer cold therapy into the hot barrel sauna. Check them out at almostheaven.com. And the Primal Blueprint online multimedia educational courses to go primal, go keto, get a stand-up desk going, master the challenge of endurance training, Go to bradkearns.com and click on the links to learn more about these courses. If you're sick of my voice on the podcast, you can now get sick of my face, too, on the videos. And ancestral supplements. This is grass-fed liver, organ meats, and bone marrow delivered in a convenient gelatin capsule. Don't stress about cooking liver anymore. Just pop some pills or throw capsules into a smoothie every day like me. Hi, listeners. My guest, Joel Jameson, is going to blow your mind. He's going to alter your perspective and get you to rethink some of the basic notions of athletic training and recovery. This is the first time I met him, but we did a great show uh, months ago on my Primal Endurance podcast channel. So go check that out where he talks about these amazing concepts of the constrained model of energy expenditure and recovery-based training. The idea that recovery takes energy in and of itself. 
uh, my thick head just didn't really grasp this with the profound appreciation that I did after reading his article called uh, All Pain and No Gain. So you have to check him out over at 8weeksout.com. That's the number 8weeksout.com. He's been deep into the MMA fighting scene for many years. I believe that's how he first got his major impact because he called these guys out. This is many years ago now where he basically addressed the MMA community and he said, hey, all y'all are training too hard. You're sparring too much in practice. You're getting broken down, burnt out, and I have a better way. And I think he was initially criticized and then, wow, made his major impact. He's training the top, top fighters. He has a world champion uh, in his camp. You can see his pictures in the stories on 8weeksout.com. But the concept that the harder we train, the more energy we have to devote to recovery will slap you in the face if you sit back and reflect upon it. And again, as we covered that topic briefly, but then got into another profound insight that he calls rebound training, where instead of just laying around after hard workouts to recover, which is what my mentality has been my entire athletic career, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, we rode 100 miles yesterday, so today I'm going to uh, eat chips and watch movies on the couch because that is the smartest athlete to recover. He actually has this concept of rebound training where you can get into the gym or wherever and do specific purposeful exercises that trigger the stimulation of the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest recovery functions, as opposed to the over-domination of the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight that occurs in general everyday hectic life, and also when we train in a, a devoted manner. So, Wow, this was just a profound insight for me to think that you go in the gym, you do some breathing and stretching and mobility exercises, you do some purposeful things such as, let's say, doing a 10-second all-out interval and then recovering for the next 60 seconds and during that time making a concerted effort to lower your heart rate and by becoming skilled at this parasympathetic activation, right, to lower your heart rate, you can get good at this during the busy workday or when you're in a traffic jam and you become skilled at activating parasympathetic function and speeding up your recovery time. A quote from Joel's article about rebound training, the most important thing you can do is to shift your body into what I call the recovery state within 24 to 48 hours following a high intensity session. He also got me improving my understanding about heart rate variability because uh, I didn't realize this concept before, but a high HRV, which is widely acknowledged to be the chance to go out there and train hard because you're fully recovered, might mean that your parasympathetic nervous system is working really hard because you still haven't fully recovered. Trip out on that. We know that if your HRV is low, that you're not supposed to train because you're tired. But if your HRV is abnormally high, it also might be uh, appropriate time for recovery. Huh. I'm telling you, this is cutting edge right here. Listen to the show. This is a cool dude. He's a big-time helicopter pilot. That's his hobby, his passion. He showed me some videos on his desktop where he's flying around in the mountains of Washington and notices a mountaintop that's bald, you know, no trees on it. And he just, he just laid that puppy down in the middle of the forest just for a quick landing, having a little fun, blowing some dirt around. And uh, just after we recorded the show, nearing sunset in the beautiful sun 
summers of the Pacific Northwest, he was about to take off on his helicopter and pop over to a nearby island where his boat was parked for a weekend of chilling. Uh, helicopter flight time, 30 minutes. If you want to do the same driving through the crazy Seattle traffic and riding the ferries, it was a four-hour journey. So what a way to travel in the helicopter. And he gives some interesting insights about the importance of relaxing and going with the flow when he was talking about his helicopter piloting. So per my mission on the show, I pushed the record button. It was before we started in with the formal show about fitness and peak performance. And you'll get some interesting little tidbits about the importance of relaxing and going with the flow, even when you're doing a life or death maneuver like landing a helicopter. Let's listen to Joel Jameson in beautiful Kirkland, Washington. When you learn to fly a helicopter or an airplane for that matter, you're very tense and you're very tight. Oh, sure. And you over control yeah. the hell out of the thing. Right. So really, you can feel. Right. right. Like if I'm tense and tight, I'm making these large, abrupt control inputs yeah. and the helicopter's all over right. the place. Because it's so important. It's so important. Right. Literally, literally <laughs> I mean, the closer you get to the ground, the more afraid you get, right? So your natural instincts to try to hold on tighter. And the tighter you hold on to the cyclic, which is what controls the, the main. Uh, What's it called? The cyclic. Controls cyclic. Left, left and right, yeah. forward, backward. The, the tighter you hold on to that, or even the pedals as well, the more you over-control the whole helicopter and you end up just getting in the, the whirlpool of death. And the more you actually relax, the smaller your inputs become, the better you actually fly. So it's a, it's a, it's a really clear picture of how important it is to be able to just relax and go with the moment go the moment rather than trying to force things to happen because you literally can feel the helicopter veering yeah, off or you got to get over yourself in the helicopter yeah, too you get over, that's, that's one thing that teaches you is that you've got to relax especially we do a lot of emergency training so we oh, cut yeah. the engine basically and we <laughs> practice gliding in spots you don't actually turn it off you disconnect it from the rotor, yeah. main rotor blades and you practice basically gliding into spots and of course people's natural instinct is to tense up because the helicopter is dropping at 2,000 feet a minute i mean it's Serious? It's, you drop in a helicopter two thousand feet a oh, minute yeah, in a 20, training session. Twenty five hundred feet a minute. Oh, so let's see how you do here, man. Then you'll get your license. <laughs> yeah, That's right. gnarly. But it's just all part of practicing for, for that. Sure. Actually happens. So if there was an emergency, you could you could handle it. But a lot of that stuff is just learning how to just relax and deal with the situation versus trying to panic and force something. Or, well, I mean, I, I, I could see telling a, an athlete to relax, but like, relax, it's just a matter of life or death. <laughs> exactly. That's a little tough. It is, but it teaches I mean, you a valuable lesson, because when you relax, you fly better. Much better, actually. Now, do you have people that aren't going to make it past that, that cut, where, um, you know, they're not cut out for flying, and you have to say, hey, There's, man, I noticed you'd never relax, so... Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a flight instructor, honestly, because I don't want to... Yeah have get paid to have people kill me or try to kill me at least that's what yeah. flight instruction is right it's oh right, sure that's right getting paid to help someone yeah not kill themselves so they learn how to fly mostly yeah but, uh, no i mean i've definitely flown with a, a range of pilots and some people are much much better at relaxing just letting letting themselves go and just focusing on the control and being loose and flexible and some people just never really quite get it they over control they overthink it they can't process the information as quickly because that's the other thing is it's a lot of information being processed a lot of times. You're, you're not just flying, but you're navigating, you're communicating, right. you're doing all these things, paying attention to the instruments and the engine. Um, and being able to process that and fly and make decisions is you know, a skill that gets developed over time. And I could sit here and have a conversation in the helicopter, listen to two different ATC conversations going uh -huh. at once while I'm navigating. It's a lot of things to process, but your brain can do it. It just takes practice, right? It's like yeah. It takes training. Do you think the, like the simulators and the video games really would um, help these days with you know maybe to some extent they'll never simulate the actual 
control factor or yeah. feelings that you get from being in the air. But you know, as far as some of the information processing, there's probably some carryover, and there's actually some you know at the top level of, of aviation, uh, it's all simulator training. So my my cousin flies Lear jets and now a jet called Challenger. These are three to five, ten, twenty million dollar jets, and the first mm -hmm. time you fly them is literally a real aircraft after you've done all the training in the simulator yeah. and then you just go fly it and you're yeah. ready to go like there's no actual training of the flying in the aircraft the training is all done in the simulator and then you go fly the aircraft and you uh -huh. get your type rating and you're done because it's five thousand dollars an hour no one's gonna spend five thousand dollars <laughs> an hour to train you so you go sure. to the simulator for two thousand dollars an hour whatever the simulator oh, is still expensive it's very expensive yeah, yeah. all the all the training for the high level aircraft the, the all the commercial jets that's all simulator all 100 percent simulator training but those simulators are real intense serious, serious. million dollar simulator oh, or something yeah yeah I mean, they're, they're 3d they're you know completely dimensional and they rotate and shift and rock and roll and panoramic views i mean they simulate everything that's what all the actual pilots are trained on and kept current on so ah. there's no doubt the simulation plays a role that's just a question of like is your xbox really yeah you know, maybe maybe not i suppose know. if you um you know, if you could keep cool under the pressure that you faced in the simulator rather than freak because oh, yeah, it's so real that's, life. That's what it is, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yep. And then um, there, there's know. no reason why not ex unless you get your central nervous system yeah, it's, to interfere. scenario-based training is what a lot of the simulator stuff is. Yeah, so, yeah. For example, uh, you know, when Sully went down in the Hudson and that was a miracle. Yeah. Well, the reality is they trained for that kind of stuff all the time. Like, he yeah. made the right decision because he had trained in simulators and had engine failures that maybe be one in a hundred million may never happen. Yeah. But he trained but they in a simulator do it. and they actually did happen, right? I mean, a double bird strike is so rare to lose two engines like that, but he yeah. trained for it in a simulator and he put it down, you know, as a result. So that's what yeah. they do in simulators. They train for these ridiculous scenarios that are highly unlikely, but when you're talking to millions of flights, highly unlikely is going to happen sooner or later. So yeah. Or you better do it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So. Yeah. Do they yeah. train him with like getting their blood alcohol up to point two three like those guys from uh, U.S. Air and then yeah, and no, see if they can still fly? Yeah, no, 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 I don't no, think so. No, ruin the simulator. Yeah. Uh, so I I push the record button, Joel, because uh, if you know about the 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 theme of the Get Over Yourself podcast, we're trying to we're trying to get real and cut through the performance aspect and have sure. some fun. So I figured, you know, this this flying thing, I forgot about that element when we talked about it before. Oh, yeah. But you know, I, I got you on the, um, the the Primal Blueprint show because this article that you wrote it just blew my mind. This eight weeks out website, and then the article was um, all pain no gain yep. and just r opening up an entirely different point of view on recovery and the main insight that for some reason never hit my thick head prior to that was that recovery actually takes energy and oh, a lot of energy. in the in the triathlon realm i remember we just train our brains out until we we're exhausted and then we get on the couch and we say I'm, I'm done with my training now i'm recovering and i'll get back up again whatever day and do it again yeah. but never applying that concept of like the pie slice and the wedge of pie that you have to allocate to recovery and so i went back and read it again just for fun to just uh, get get excited about our, our personal meeting yeah, yeah. here in, in beautiful uh, kirkland washington uh and again, like uh, this quote popped out at me where you said, the harder you train, the more energy you have to devote to recovery. Yeah, and I, I never really thought about that either. That's like this, this, this beast that keeps growing yep. uh, the more you train. So um, that's our starting point, man. Yeah, you know, I, th I think it's one of those things that just kind of hit me over the years. And, uh, you know, I hate to say I'm getting old, but the older I get, right, the more you see it firsthand the more athletes you work with that are that are aging and have put the years in 
the more you just see over and over again the same story. You know, it's the story of I trained really hard when I was young and I was able to perform at a high level and then I kept trying to do it and I kept trying to push my body harder and harder and harder. Sooner or later, I started to break down and you just see this, again, you see this story over and over again. So I've been measuring heart rate variability for since about 2002, I would say 2003. I was one of the, the earliest coaches, I would say, in North America to use it. So that mean you had to do the giant machine yeah, with yeah, we had six electrodes uh, six electrodes yeah, now we got our smartphones had two on the ankles two on the uh wrists and then actually you had seven and you had two in the chest and one on the forehead so yeah it was a lot of work but it was very instrumental in me seeing like holy shit you know like people's recovery is so much worse than i expected it to be uh because my inherent thought and most people's inherent thought is like oh the gym itself is my biggest stressor right they think like mm. if i go out for a workout for an hour or two that's the most stressful thing i do to myself but the reality is it's the other 21 22 23 24 hours a day where you're working or you're dealing with family stress or you're dealing with just life those things have a huge impact on recovery because they are also energy intensive and your body can only produce so much energy in a day so if you're redirecting all your energy towards just dealing with life and working and sitting there and mentally doing stressful things, it sabotages your recovery. And so I started to see just the impact of people working at Microsoft and the deadline was coming up or college students studying for finals or, you know, people going through divorce or relationship problems or dealing with, you know, family death or just things that would come up in everyday life. You would just see how much of an impact that had on people's recovery. And you'd see that as someone gets older, their ability to tolerate those things got worse and worse and worse and worse. So as their energy was going towards those things and not recovery, they couldn't compensate the way they could when they were in their 19s or 20s or you know, even sometimes early 30s. You would just see this diminishing effect of their body to handle all the things that you throw at it. And so just you know, seeing that happen over and over again and then seeing it happen in my own training, my own life. You know, I'd see when I was stressed out from business or I had my, my mom went through a, a stroke and I could see all these things happening to me and just seeing... You know, again, the impact of, of life and training and stress and all these things, it just shows you that your your body, you know, it needs to devote energy towards recovery. And if you don't give it that time and you don't give it that energy, you pay the price sooner or later. It just, it's, an, it's a ticking time bomb, really. So where does heart rate variability stand in, in your uh, respect of how well that indicates your state of recovery? Uh, you know, I think as a single metric, it's, it's the best single metric we have. Um, now, the, the new system about Morpheus looks at sleep, it looks at training, it looks at activity, and some other markers that I think help fine-tune that. That's um, your app, Morpheus? Yeah, Morpheus, yeah. yeah. It's, it's designed to essentially take all those data points and give you a recovery score, versus HRV, which just kind of gives you a number and expects you have to kind of figure out what that number means, which is the trickier part of HRV. But I think as a single number, it's a, it's a very powerful marker of recovery because um, it's giving you an indication of the parasympathetic nervous system, which if you're... Listeners aren't too familiar with that. It's you know it's the branch the autonomic nervous system that drives energy into uh, tissue repair and tissue regeneration and digestion. I mean, it basically is the recovery branch in a lot of senses, and so it's giving you a marker of where that system is functioning. So that tells us, hey, if that system is in a certain state, we know the body is trying to devote energy back into recovery. If we know it's in a different state, we know the body is devoting energy more towards dealing with whatever stress is in front of it right now. So. You know, as a single gauge, I think it's an incredibly powerful uh, marker. And there's there's been research on it for 50 years. I mean, this isn't something that's some new thing they just invented. This has been around since the you know, 50s and 60s. It's been very, very well-researched and documented. So I think as, again, as a single number, it is the most uh, valuable thing we have at this point. 
And do you think the smartphone technology where all we need is a chest strap and a $10 app uh, is going to give you accurate readouts and accurate tracking? Um, you know, I think accuracy, if, if you're using one of the better chest straps, uh, like the Polar and a few other ones that are really good at actually giving you the R integral data, and you're using you know, a good app, my old original one was BioForce HRV, which certainly was documented and validated, then yeah, you can get accurate readings. Again, I think the the tricky part isn't the reading, it's understanding what that information means, mm. right? It took me you know, quite a while to use HRV and see what the numbers meant because, you know, it's going to be constantly changing the body's dynamic, right? I could measure mm. my blood pressure, I could measure my heart rate, I could measure my HRV, I could see all these things every day, but if I didn't really know what to look for, what the trends meant, then I wouldn't really be able to do much with it. So. I think, yeah, great, a good heart rate, uh, you know, chest strap and a phone app, you can get the HRV number accurately, you know, but again, it's it's what does that number actually mean, and that's where the, the trickier part comes into play. And so to optimize this, you're going to establish a baseline, mm -hmm. I imagine is the most important, so that you're not comparing yourself to your sure. training partner who's always 10 beats higher than you, or 10 points higher. Yep. Uh, and then where do you go from, uh, you know, let, let's say I've, d I've been doing this every day. I actually did it every day for three years when I first got excited about HRV. Yep. I kind of, uh, you know, got lazy about it in, in, in recent times. And bring me to another question is, um, how do you kind of... Uh, stack that up with just the general desire to train, as Kelly Starrett says. Sure. So, uh, you know, a couple things. Uh, really, what that information means depends on how you interpret it, right? There's there's lots of agreement, but there's also some disagreement in terms of how you actually interpret that data. So, when I built BioForce back in 2011, 12, it was, that's essentially what we did is we looked at your seven-day average. We looked at, okay, what's your personal baseline? And we looked at what's your own kind of variability. And when you would see changes outside of your normal, you know, whether that was a change in increase or a change in a decrease, that generally meant a decreased amount of recovery, that your body was starting to become a bit more fatigued. And over the years, we refined that algorithm and got a little bit better and better with it. Um, and then the new one, Morpheus, takes it and just gives you a recovery score. And it's an easier thing for people to interpret as a, a recovery score than an actual uh, you know, just HRV number. So, what else are you putting into Morpheus besides the HRV number? So it's looking at five things basically: looking at your HRV, it's looking at your sleep. Is that self-reported sleep? It's either self-reported or if you have a Fitbit or a okay. Garmin app or any right. other wearable, it'll pull data in from other wearables or the health oh. kit or iPhone, whatever you're using. Jeez, man! Um, it tracks your activity and the same thing. So activity can be uh -huh. sleep, or sorry, it could be your phone, it could be an iP you know, Fitbit, it could be just whatever you're using for activity, or you know, if you're not using anything, it'll just track your phone's movement. Um, and then it's looking at training. So if you wear the heart rate monitor in your workout, it'll mm. look at your workout activity. And then self-reported markers of soreness and, and the nutrition quality and those sorts of markers as well. So it's five different categories. And then it takes all that and it gives you a recovery score. And then it takes that. And getting back to your question about what do you, you know, how do you rectify that with a desired train, right? So it'll give you three heart rate zones for the day. And that's the biggest thing I wanted to help people understand is just because your recovery is on the lower side doesn't mean you can't train. It just means you need to take that into consideration. And so it gives you three heart rate zones. Basically, it gives you a blue zone, which is a heart rate zone or a level of intensity that will promote recovery, you know, provided you don't go do two hours of it. It will give you a green zone that's intended more for development of conditioning, aerobic fitness. And then it will give you a red zone, which is really your top end intensity zone where, you know, if you spend too much time in that zone, especially when your recovery is already low, you will start to fatigue and overtrain. So... Um, you know, again, I want to help people bridge that gap. So there's, there's rarely a time when I tell someone, hey, you don't train. It's more about what's an appropriate level of training. So it's, it's more about just figuring out what's the right amount of intensity or what's the right volume for today. 
based on where my body's at. And something I always try to help people understand is people have this misconception that recovery equals performance, right? So they think, oh, my recovery is low today, so I shouldn't be able to perform well. So then they go in the gym, they perform fine. Like, oh, well, this thing's not accurate because my recovery said I was lower, but I still performed okay. I'm so excited to introduce you to Paluva. This is a new zero-drop minimalist shoe with the distinctive five-toe design from my main man, Mark Sisson. Paluvas give you the most authentic barefoot style experience, but with sufficient cushioning so you can use them for all manner of daily movement, especially walking and many other fitness and athletic activities. Paluvas are also incredibly stylish, so you get a barefoot shoe that you're not embarrassed to wear around in daily life. It's been so cool to see the popularity of minimalist shoes grow over the recent years, but Paluvas are a step ahead of every other zero-drop wide-box shoe because of the critical feature of individual five-toe articulation, a separate slot for each of your toes. This allows for correct dynamic movement of the foot through the walking or running stride, which is impossible when your toes are encased into a single box, even a wide box. Well, you might know that minimalist shoes have faced controversy in recent years for causing injuries from inappropriate use. So here is the big picture mission. We want to get you walking in paluvas, living in your paluvas, going barefoot in your home or other safe areas as often as possible. Go ahead and use your specialized cushiony running shoes or your basketball shoes, work boots, high heels, things that you want to wear when you want to wear them, but wear your Paluvas as much as possible to reawaken the natural functionality of the human foot to stand, walk, run, and perform. Do you want to try a pair? I'm certain that when you put them on and walk around, you are going to quickly realize that these are the most comfortable, natural shoes that you've ever worn. They are designed to feel like you're, quote, walking barefoot on a putting green please visit paluva.com, that's P-E-L-U-V-A, and use the code BRADPODCAST and get 10% off your first pair. Paluvas, let your feet be feet. Greetings, my fitness-minded listeners. I want to acquaint you with the Primal Fitness Expert Certification Program, the most comprehensive home study multimedia fitness education course in the world. If you want to enhance your personal knowledge of all aspects of leading a healthy, active, fit lifestyle, this total immersion course will be life-changing. I'm the lead instructor and author of the course, and we have 14 chapters of extensive written content with over 100 accompanying videos covering topics such as general everyday movement, including micro-workouts and dynamic workstation tips, the full experience of gym-based strength training and all the different modalities, a complete presentation on all aspects of sprinting, both running and low-impact options, an assortment of high-intensity interval training and high-intensity repeat training strategies, a detailed education on the principles and practical application of aerobic endurance training, and extensive commentary, the most you will find in any publication, on all aspects and symptoms of overtraining and burnout. We even have fascinating peripheral topics like integrating nasal diaphragmatic breathing, dynamic stretching, injury prevention, and developing a peak performance mindset. It's really something, this course. We went all out for over two years with a great team to develop this this amazing home-based fitness education for you. 
And you get one-on-one expert email support and private Facebook group connection throughout your studies to ensure that you absorb everything optimally and you pass your series of exams and get certified. So go to primalhealthcoach.com slash Brad to enjoy a very special limited time. And I'm not kidding. This is a big time discount just for you. 25% off your tuition. A fantastic premium offer at primalhealthcoach.com slash Brad for the most comprehensive fitness course you can ever find. That's not really what recovery is measuring. Again, recovery is measuring where is your body trying to put energy into, right? Mm. It's, it's measuring essentially where is your bank account in terms of energy. If your bank account is on the lower side of recovery, then you have less energy to vote to recovery, which just means it's going to take you a longer amount of time to recover from a given workout. It doesn't mean you can't perform. Your body can overcompensate and perform. With a gun to your head any time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Your body can get into a sympathetically driven right. state, and you can perform. It's just a question of how long is it going to take you to recover from that. If your recovery is on the low side and you go do a high-intensity workout, it might take you you know, two, three, four days to get back to normal versus if you did that same workout in a high-recovery state, you might be able to recover in 48 hours and get back into it. So recovery doesn't necessarily equal performance. Now, if your recovery is low for a week straight, yeah, you're probably going to feel the effects of it. But if your recovery is low on a given day, it doesn't mean you can't go in the gym and train hard. It's just a question of, is that the right choice? Or are you better off, you know, dialing it back a bit so you can come back the next day or the following day and then, and then do a higher intensity workout when you can recover faster from it? Because to me, the more you can train and recover, the better results you're going to see. But if you have to train and take three days to recover because you didn't train when you were ready for it, then you're you know, ultimately decreasing how much you can train and get out of it. So you know, I think it's about making sure that you train when your body is going to recover the fastest from that training versus just trying to train as hard as I can every single day or versus trying to guess, basically. So the green light to really hit it hard will only come when you have this super high yeah, when your body recovery score, when, super high HRV. When you're basically, when your body, it's not always high HRV, it could be within your body's normal ranges is probably the better way to look at it. So that's another misconception, right? Is people mm. always think high HRV is always good, low HRV is always bad. That's not necessarily the case because a very high HRV indicates, hey, the body's really trying to recover. It's devoting everything it has into recovery. So that's doing that for a reason, right? It's trying to get you back to your normal kind of baseline range. If it's really too high, it's telling you there's a reason it's really too high. It's sympathetic. It's parasympathetically dominant because because you're because you're you're a mess or whatever right so you'll see actually very high recovery okay in periods where your body's trying to recover and vice versa you'll see very low hiv scores where your body's dealing with a stressor right now where it's devoting energy into dealing with something the hrv is more of the high hrv is like i'm still in the process of recovering from that something that you did to me so in either case really high or really low is where we see decreased recovery it's not always the case that higher is better or lower is worse it's more about in your kind of normal baseline range tells you your body's probably ready to go do it again because it's not dealing with something or still recovering from something so we better get a baseline range over a a good time duration to make sure that my range is 74 to 78 yeah i mean morpheus uses a 10-day moving average okay uses a seven day so it's looking at your kind of your your seven to ten day moving average you know what's your normal range 74 to 77 and we also look at your standard deviation so some people just have a naturally bigger variation from one day to the next so we look at your own standard deviation what's your normal variance and when you exceed that normal variance again either high or low that's essentially where we derive that your recovery is not what it you know 
good beers on the lower side. So that, that elevated HRV score indicating that maybe I'm parasympathetic dominant, yep. and uh, if you're not following this too well, it's like the rest and digest is the parasympathetic and yep. the fight or flight is the sympathetic. We want those to work in harmony in the autonomic nervous system, but we're, we're, usually we're striving to get a little more parasympathetic balance because we're usually in this fight or flight state in hectic modern life. Yep. Um, so if I'm, if I'm parasympathetic dominant, it's the body's reaction to, let's say, a, a, a major bout of overstress or something, and then I'm spiking my number up high, proud of myself, go out there and, and, and slam myself again <laughs> you're still in the process of recovering right you're, right you're, it's not that you've uh, you know you haven't fully recovered that's why the number is so much more elevated than usual it's because it's trying to get it back to normal it just hasn't been able to yet okay and why don't you tell me that man three years ago I, I didn't realize that because yeah. um, you know that's that'll that'll trick the uh, the willing athlete to go out there I mean I, and I remember reading an article with one of the guys who uh, invented one of the HRV technology things and he's like the great thing is even if you're feeling lousy and you have a high score you know you can go out yeah, there and hammer I'm like whoa 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 yeah it's one of the most frustrating things to me is you know as you've seen HRV proliferate proliferate and, and be more common you've seen people create apps or become so-called experts that really don't know what they're talking about I hate to say it but you have some of these popular apps today preaching this idea that high HIV is great, low HIV is bad. It's never really that simple in the body, right? Yeah. Normal is good. Abnormal is usually not so good. Right? Yeah. There's, there's usually you know, an amount that's, in, you know, that's appropriate, and when you go above that threshold, there's probably a reason for that. The other really interesting thing is uh, they're looking more and more at the connection between the immune system and HIV. Uh, and basically what you find is, is that the sympathetic system is inherently inflammatory. So when the sympathetic system, the fight or flight system is on, your immune system is also turned on and heightened. And if you think about that from a biological perspective, fight or flight was for an emergency scenario. And where are you more likely to be exposed to pathogens, to damage mm. muscle tissue in that fight or flight scenario, right? So you want that nervous system in a heightened state when you're in a fight or flight scenario. So we are inherently sympathetically dominant or inherently in that stage. We're also inherently inflammatory in that state. Now. The interesting thing is they've done plenty of research now where they can put you into a mental uh, ta mental challenge, like doing some sort of math problem that's Video game in the next room. With yeah, the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and they'll measure what are called your cytokines or your inflammatory markers, and they will show you that your mental stress during this task will rise these levels of inflammatory markers. What's interesting, though, is I've got some of them that will show a continual rise or a level of uh, increased markers for up to two to three hours even after the stressor is passed. So you can sit there and be very mentally stressed out over something, and even after that's gone away, it can take two, three hours for some of those inflammatory markers to return back to baseline levels. Yeah. Right? Well, you see so, people coming back from a traffic altercation, yeah, fender bender, and they're shaking, yeah. telling the story. Yeah, I'm like, so, you okay? Yeah. yeah, I'm fine. Well, why yeah. Why are you shaking? Because you're, uh, you're still drugged yeah, by the exactly. massive so, fight or flight the, dose. The, the powerful thing, though, is that the parasympathetic system essentially blocks the increase in these sympathetically driven uh, inflammatory markers. So inherently the parasympathetic or rest and digest is anti-inflammatory in nature. And they think largely that's a big part of why higher HRV scores and lower rest and heart rates are protective against cardiovascular disease, protective right. against stroke, protective against diabetes. So inherently people with higher VO2 max, aerobic fitness, higher HRV, these people tend to have far less strokes and you know, cardiovascular disease and all these things for a reason. And probably a big part of that reason is because they are better at shutting off 
stress, they are better at being anti-inflammatory. They don't let their bodies get into this chronic inflammatory state that happens when you can't shut that off every day. So um, that's why another reason why HIV is a powerful marker is because if you do look at your average baseline over time, you know, someone with an average baseline of 60 is going to be much more likely to have problems down the road than somebody who's got a baseline of 80 or 90. The same thing as VO2. Someone whose VO2 max is in the higher end has a much lower risk of cardiovascular disease than somebody whose VO2 max is in the lower end. Mm-hmm. So aerobic fitness is inherently protective because it inherently drives that parasympathetic nervous system, which inherently gives you a better ability to cope with stress because you can shut off inflammation. That's what it comes down to. So it's fascinating stuff. So I guess if you're a hardcore crossfitter, endurance athlete, triathlete, ultra runner in this immersed in this world and you uh, trek HRV for five years, you probably, if you're doing it correctly, would want to see a general upward twin, upward yeah. twin in that baseline. Yep. To and an extent, right? I mean, it, there's, there's, again, there's, there's always too much of it, but yes, you want yeah. to see a higher average HRV than... And if it's, if it's if it's if it's if you're dropping three or four beats three or four points every um, every year, you're probably uh, showing an overly stressful lifestyle pattern. Yep, and we have that's why we had about a million and a half data points of HRV from wow. every age group imaginable, and so we ran a whole bunch of, of math on it and looked at kind of the average change over lifespan or over a period of time for men and women, and, and we essentially saw I, I, I don't want to bastardize the numbers. I could give you the actual numbers, but somewhere between like a two and four percent decrease a year once you start hitting your like late 30s early 40s wow. you would see this very linear trend in the change in hrv over time and again as we age we just get inherently less effective at dealing with stress we get inherently less effective at repairing ourselves recovery is one of the biggest reasons we age is because our cells don't turn over as effectively right it takes mm. much longer for cell turnover to happen it takes uh, much longer for us to recover from a given level of stress. We get much more damage from oxidation and inflammation, and that's ultimately why we all die of something, mm-hmm. right? Cancer or cardiovascular disease or some combination thereof. It's just because our tissues get worse and worse at recovery. And it's interesting that you can actually see this when you look at recovery. You can look at the HIV decrease as we age. It's a, it's a clear correlation there for a reason. So what's a strategy to guard against that in terms of our commitment to fitness? I mean, there's lots of them, right? And number one is just being mindful of, of what's appropriate for yourself on a, a given day. And you can actually, again, like, like I said, you can develop higher HRV by developing the aerobic side of the equation. Mm-hmm. But uh, obviously, if you do way too much high intensity and way too much training, you're not really going to increase it. You're going to make it fundamentally worse. So I think the goal for most people should be develop a level of aerobic fitness that's cardiovascular protective. And you can see that in HIV. So, in again, every system out there uses a different number. So you really can't compare sure. one HIV score to another because we're all doing math and giving you some interpretation of that. But uh, with BioForce, we would always say try to hit like an 80. And the 80 score in BioForce was, generally speaking, in that range of cardioprotective uh, levels. And you know, when you see endurance athletes in the 80s, 90s, and, and even sometimes above. So it's it's just you know training intelligently to develop your aerobic fitness and you know strength training and all that plays a role but aerobic fitness is always going to be the most important it's just a matter of managing your volume and intensity and your nutrition and sleep and all those things appropriately to see that you know to see that increase and to see that uh, baseline maintained over time as you age so you don't get that chronic decrease and decrease and 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 worse results over time so it's it always starts with managing volume and intensity that's the mm-hmm. most important thing you can do uh, so the aerobic fitness you're saying is is more important in this context than developing your strength, power, uh, resistance training. Yeah, I mean, so I th- I th- for 
this purpose, yes. So there, there's actually a ton of athletes. Because we're measuring our, our cardiovascular function. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cardiovascular function is, is tied to HRV and it's tied to uh, the parasympathetic system. So, for example, I've got a paper. Uh, they looked at, I think it was 11 or 12 different studies in life expectancy in athletes. Hmm. And they looked at powerlifters, weightlifters, you know, uh, endurance athletes. Wow, interesting. Athletes. And out of that, the only group of athletes that showed an increase in life expectancy were endurance athletes. Uh, increase it. over Just general, general population. population? Yes. The rest of them had... Some of them had worse. Some of them actually, oh, some mercy. athletic populations actually had lower life expectancies than the average population. So basically what you find, what the study found was that the average... A uh, person who's active, so just being active, and there was some number of steps per day or some self-quantified measure of activity, being active can increase your life expectancy by about two to four years, hmm. just over the average population who's sedentary, right? right? So just being active and just living a normal lifestyle, two to four years. Endurance athletes live anywhere from four to eight years longer than the average person, which is significant, right? I mean, that's a significant amount of years when you're talking about the average person in their 70s you're averaging four to eight years longer and that could be a 10 percent longer lifespan yeah but some of the athletic populations were actually lower than the average person and lower than the average person who's active so was speed golfers in there as a <laughs> yeah i don't know about that i one, hope but, not uh, it, was, it, was, it was interesting review though it was you know it's a meta-analysis so it was a review of several different papers but i think strength training i don't want to downplay its importance it's important for for um you know maintain muscle mass maintain body composition and all those things play a role as well there's you know some stuff out there looking at uh i think there was a big study published not too long ago that looked at like the bone density and muscle mass did play a role in life expectancy but the reality was it was most likely in my in my reading of the paper and other ones because if you had muscle mass and you had bone density you could be more active Right. Right. If you didn't have the bone density or the bone ma muscle mass to move around, you were going to be more sedentary. So you weren't going to actually get the activity. You weren't going to get the movement, which you need to, to stay alive. So, uh, you know, I think strength training is certainly important. It's, it's, I don't want to downplay that, um, but it's largely needs to be there because we need to keep moving and we need to have cardiovascular fitness. That's why we, uh, you know, that's why we stay alive. We move and you see a lot of people become more sedentary as they retire. They don't last long. It's, it's the people yeah. who keep working and have hobbies and get out and move around. They, you know, they tend to stick around a lot longer because we're designed to move as a human being and we have mm. to have the capacity to do that. And at the end of the day, your cardiovascular system is what drives all that. Well, it seems like it's all tied together. I mean, if you're uh, eating a bad diet and becoming insulin resistant, then you literally do not have the energy in your bloodstream to get off the couch and you're exhausted if you walk around the block because you can't burn fat. And so, yeah, I mean, yep, exactly. just like, you know, maintaining muscle mass, bone density so you can... You can move. Yes, yeah, so, right? so you can last longer than a yep. four-minute walk or whatever. Yeah, actually, yeah. it's really interesting. I was looking, there's some stuff looking at how the dopamine signaling changes in people that are obese. And for, for some reason, they're, there's, they, they think that the... And dopamine basically re rewards us to move or to do anything, really. It's, it's kind of how the brain decides what work is worth moving for, right? Because mm. work takes energy. Mm -hmm. And the brain has to be intelligent about how do I expend my energy? I've got limited supplies. So they've actually looked at like animals and, and how they decide like if I can't find food, do I go spend the work to go 20 miles to go look for more food? Because if I can't find food there, then I'm screwed. I'm going to run out of energy. I'm going to die basically. So there's all this uh, foraging optimization where animals' dopamine systems are basically designed to allow them to analyze like where should I go? How far should I go to look for food for optimal survival? And we're kind of wired like that too. We decide like what's worth expending energy for. And I think this is a lot of reasons why you see uh, people train for two months in January and February and then stop working out because as soon as they step on the scale and it didn't change, their brain goes, wait a minute, why am I going to the gym again? 
that's not worth it. I just worked my ass off for four weeks and the, the scale didn't budge an ounce. I'm not doing this anymore. Wow. I'm just sit my ass on the couch and watch TV. That's way more fun, right? So I think your average person, as soon as they start to see diminishing returns of fitness, because fitness isn't linear, you know, every time you step on the scale, you're not going to see an incremental decrease in weight if that's your only goal. You're not going to see the bar weight go up every single time you go to the gym. So as soon as our brain starts to see, wait a minute, I'm putting out all this work in, I'm expending all this energy, I'm not seeing any benefit, why am I going to keep doing this? And they, they, they lose motivation to do it. It's a very fascinating thing. Um, but going back to the, the obese population, they think that a lot of it has to do with dopamine stops rewarding activity the way that it should and starts rewarding eating in a much Oof. more uh, you know, persistent manner because dopamine rewards both, right? It rewards eating food and it rewards doing exercise because we have to eat to replenish. We have to move traditionally to go get food. Nowadays, we can sit there and order it from our phones. But you know, traditionally, you had to move to go get something to eat or to go kill Oof. your food. And then yeah. you had to actually be motivated to eat it. So there's this whole dopamine interaction of rewarding both activities of movement and eating and they think there's some disorder there in, in uh, essentially telling the brain to be rewarded for movement instead it's just rewarding the eating over and over again and people completely lose the motivation to be active right and they just sit there and they're rewarded to eat over and over again so it's a fascinating you know thing of how yeah. our biology was originally designed to help us go out find food and then be hungry enough to eat it right and the now, dopamine came on the same yeah it's it all was the same road down to the road to go get food and be physically active yeah. were tied inextricably yeah, and now they're not exactly and so now you see the you know you see people sitting there and, and ordering food in their phone and being less and less active and you know it's, it's a weird uh, juxtaposition where the same chemical can essentially reward two totally opposite behaviors and you can just see that when there's an imbalance there for yeah. whatever reason you know people become much less rewarded to to move and they sit there and eat all day long it's probably a slippery slope downward when you first start uh, going down the route of eating without exercising and it's kind of like when you add uh, belly fat as the males go into the uh, advancing decades yep. you add a little bit of belly fat it secretes, secretes inflammatory cytokines which causes you to add more belly fat yeah oops so it's a cycle well, it's another interesting study is um, so they, they took people to a gym and they, and they said, okay, we want you to work out. And then they said, okay, we want you to estimate essentially your calorie burn. Have you read this one? I think uh, I mentioned it somewhere in the study, right? Uh, it's on the paper. And then they took you to a buffet and they said, we want you to eat the same oh, number yeah. of calories you felt like you just burned. Yeah. And basically what it showed is people ate four times more than they actually burned, even though they thought they were they right. were you know trying to have a level amount there so they, right. they thought they burned one amount and they thought they ate the same amount but they actually ate four times more than they burned so we're probably inherently hardwired a bit to you know to overeat especially when we're overstressed we're you know we're protective against you know losing losing muscle mass and and we're more protective against dying from starvation than we are being fat so our brains are probably inherently hardwired to want to Oh, sure. Eat, right? The compensation theory of exercise, where the, the more depleting the exercise event is, the more you're triggered, your appetite hormones are spiked, and you go and overeat exactly. uh, You know, on the idea that you might try to do it again the next day. That kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with that um, additive model uh, and the constrained model of energy expenditure yeah, exactly. that's referenced in your article. Yeah, the more you burn, the more you want to put back in, right? Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's one of those things, again, that's why... That's again. It's why you have to balance your intensity and your recovery and everything else. Because if your if your recovery is low, what's it going to do? It's going to inherently make you want to eat more, right? Because you're in a recovery debt. You, you your body wants more energy to devote back towards recovery. It's going to try to get you to intake as much as you can. So, I guess that's maybe okay in a certain context, you right? You need it. It's a question of how much you know. Maybe you overdo it. You know, are we, are yeah. we good? Are we good at judging the right amount? It's well. I think 
part of our problem too is portion sizes have gotten so ridiculous, right? If you go, I've done a lot of traveling. If you go to a lot of places like Japan or even Europe, like their their portions are much more. At least they used to be much more restrained compared to ours. My, yeah. My Japanese. Yeah, friend, no, maybe they've changed now. Yeah, I don't know, my, my Japanese friends and fighters would always come over here and be like, "Oh, America's such big portions." Right? I mean, they just couldn't believe some of the dinner sizes. You know, you go out to uh, you know, a normal chain restaurant here, and they're, you'd be getting these meals are three times the size of what their yeah. normal dinners would be. So. Also, when you eat quality food, like you go get a grass-fed steak or a pasture-raised chicken at the farmer's market. I remember buying my first one, and the guy's like, yeah, it's $14. I'm like, what? You know, Because <laughs> yeah. the chicken's 5 bucks at the store. We all know how much a chicken costs. Yeah. We all know how big it is. We're envisioning it in our mind. And the guy hands me this thing that fits in my palm. But you go home and cook that thing, and it was so rich and delicious that the this much smaller animal that was naturally raised yeah. is just as satisfying as the more bulky, uh, kind of blander-tasting uh, uh, regular conventional yeah, yeah. chicken with hormones, pesticides, antibiotics in there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the food quality's gone down, food portion size has gone up, and we're more stressed than ever, right? So, is there any wonder why we have the problems in, in, in our health and wellness that we do? Same with same with exercise quality, man. We're just yeah. throwing stuff up against the throwing spaghetti on the fridge and seeing yeah. if it'll stick without without respecting that uh, that recovery aspect. One thing I wanted to talk to you about was the um, uh, the rebound training. Yep. Uh, because since since we last talked, I made a concerted effort to test some new theories in my general exercise pattern, and that is to have more time periods, whether you can call it a day or, let's say, a 36-hour time block, where I wasn't doing a whole heck of a lot. Rather than getting up every single morning for my life and doing that easy 20-minute jog, no big deal, and then maybe some, some form of you know strength training here and there, or doing three workouts a week, and then taking it down to two and making them, uh, you know, more difficult, more ambitious, maybe taking some days off from the patterned aerobic exercise. And I feel like I certainly haven't lost anything from reducing the overall volume out there. Um, But I feel like uh, when I do a hard workout, I consider recovery to be lazing around and then i'm reading this article going oh crap this guy's got us in the gym doing these elaborate setups to do things like prime the central nervous system for recovery so tell me what rebound training is all i'm so excited to introduce you to paluva this is a new zero drop minimalist shoe with the distinctive five toe design from my main man mark sisson paluvas give you the most authentic barefoot style experience but with sufficient cushioning so you can use them for all manner of daily movement, especially walking and many other fitness and athletic activities. Paluvas are also incredibly stylish, so you get a barefoot shoe that you're not embarrassed to wear around in daily life. It's been so cool to see the popularity of minimalist shoes grow over the recent years, but Paluvas are a step ahead of every other zero-drop wide-box shoe because of the critical feature of individual five-toe articulation, a separate slot for each of your toes. This allows for correct dynamic movement of the foot through the walking or running stride, which is impossible when your toes are encased into a single box, even a wide box. 
Well, you might know that minimalist shoes have faced controversy in recent years for causing injuries from inappropriate use. So here is the big picture mission. We want to get you walking in paluvas, living in your paluvas, going barefoot in your home or other safe areas as often as possible. Go ahead and use your specialized cushiony running shoes or your basketball shoes, work boots, high heels, things that you want to wear when you want to wear them, but wear your Paluvas as much as possible to reawaken the natural functionality of the human foot to stand, walk, run, and perform. Do you want to try a pair? I'm certain that when you put them on and walk around, you are going to quickly realize that these are the most comfortable, natural shoes that you've ever worn. They are designed to feel like you're, quote, walking barefoot on a putting green please visit paluva.com, that's P-E-L-U-V-A, and use the code BRADPODCAST and get 10% off your first pair. Paluvas, let your feet be feet. I would like you to know this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. I have benefited extensively from online therapy. Some experts contend that you can be more vulnerable than you might be in person. What I value the most is actionable insights and specific honest feedback. I don't need someone just listening to me. I want to get some practical tips and I can definitely get that from a remote therapist. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, Maybe you're hesitant to drive across town and go into some building. Why don't you give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire, and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge, because getting the best fit and the most comfortable connection is very important. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash bradpod, B-R-A-D-P-O-D. That's betterhelp.com slash bradpod today to get 10% off your first month. Again, betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash bradpod and get on your way to being your best self. Yeah, so essentially what I started doing you know, since I've been using HIV for so long was I started looking at uh, what are things that we see that cause people's HIV to kind of go up as an indication of you know putting more energy towards recovery, essentially turning on that recovery system we talked about and then, and then seeing them recover well the following day. Um, and then I started trying out different things in the gym and essentially found a combination of uh, breathing exercises that turned on the parasympathetic system, uh, getting blood flow, you know, going through the system, just movement and activity in different patterns, but doing it in a lower uh, impact type of way. So things that minimize the eccentric pounding, so medicine ball throws and uh, low impact stuff like the bike or versa climber or things like that. And then, uh, you know, strength training, but only for a limited number of sets and then going through a really comprehensive cool down to bring everything back down. I just kind of started playing around with different workout structures and patterns to see could we get the body to shift into that recovery state quicker mm-hmm. and essentially that's kind of where this idea of of rebound training was born it was just can we use exercise as a tool to speed the recovery process up and the funny thing was you know you'd always kind of see when you're tapering right like you see your recovery start to go whoop, but you start tapering and usually that's just decreasing volume the question is are you is your recovery going up because you're suddenly cutting your volume back or because you're just doing these shorter you know more intensely focused right. but less vo- volume 
based workouts and part of it i think is, is that so essentially the, the whole thing is you know it's hermesis like can we use exercise by introducing just enough of it to promote blood circulation and blood flow and some get some hormones going and you know get our autonomic nervous system shifted into that parasympathetic state without going so much over that we burn so much energy that again now we're actually taking away from recovery so again that's kind of where this whole idea of rebound training was born it was just this light bulb went off as I started to look at some of the HIV data and I started to look at some of the uh, the military had done some testing in this area and we basically just saw that you know there was actually some patterns to to what we could do to get the body to shift more into that recovery state quicker and that's where the the, the template of the pattern I put together to create rebound training. And the great thing is it's, it's flexible. You, you know, it's not like you have to do X, Y, and Z exercise. It's not like you have to have 10 different specialized pieces of equipment. I mean, you really don't. It's more about just choosing intensity that's appropriate, going through some of the breathing and mobility drills that uh, uh, I worked with Mike Roberts and Bill Hartman to, to you know, go through and practice and implement. And then, you know, doing some strength training that's primarily concentric based, so an Olympic lift or deadlift or something primarily where you, you have less of an eccentric load to it because that's where more of the, the damage goes and uh, in, in, comes into play so yeah it's just been a you know a, a journey of figuring out how do we use exercise as a positive uh, reinforcement of recovery rather than something that takes away from it and so far it's been uh, been really effective for a ton of people I, I use it all the time and we've uh, you know got a couple thousand Morpheus users that we're experimenting more and more with and with, like the Morpheus gives you your actual recovery zone right so you just go in the recovery zone for mm-hmm. 20, 30 minutes and go through these exercises and you see recovery score go up and you see the benefits of it. So it's, it's been really cool to start implementing something I think more and more people should should do. And I think you'll, you'll, you'll quickly find that, hey, I come out of the gym feeling way better. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it's also more, more motivating to come out of the gym and be like, wow, I, I feel good right now because I think that's part of our problem too is someone who's hardcore in exercise, they don't care if they feel like shit. They're still going to do it because that's, that's what they do. You know, But most people out there Right. If they go in the gym every day and they kill themselves, it's not going to last forever. That's why, you know, I don't want to beg on CrossFit, but I think you saw so much turnover in clientele in the CrossFit scenario because... That's the nicest way I've know. ever heard you say. It's like when I talk about the team in training, you know, the marathon training group with the purple shirts. Yeah. Turnover in clientele Turnover, yes. rather than bullshit, right? overly stressful <laughs> yes, training program exactly. that ruins people and spits them out the back. Yeah, it's because you, yeah. Think, because you go into this thinking like, oh, if I work my ass off, I'm going to see the results, I'm going to feel great. But that never happens, right? You work your ass off, you see some results for a while, you get excited, and then you're like, wait a minute, my shoulder hurts, and my back hurts, I don't really want to go do that anymore. And so we've, again, if you're only thought of the gym as this place to go get my ass kicked and feel tired and I walk out the door, most people are going to stop doing that sooner or later. You know, if you're not getting paid for it or you're not driven by performance goals, you're eventually going to be like, this sucks, I don't want to do this. Oh, for sure. And it's, it, not even, it's not even conscious. This is a disaster yeah, it's, it's, that it, we see playing out in, exactly. in modern life. I mean, yep. well-meaning people going and get slammed, and it's like, hey, why, why are you so lazy? Why aren't you exercising? Well, there's a gosh darn good reason because yeah, exactly. it's so, too painful. Yeah, so yeah. You know, the whole idea of rebound training is, hey, we can go in the gym. Mm come out feeling better. It's a friendly right? place. There's yeah, like yeah, balloons and yeah, Joel puts up balloons on rebound training day. Yeah, it doesn't have to yeah. be a place you go in and get killed. It can be a place you go in and I come out like, oh, my joints feel better. I feel loose. I feel more energetic. And that's really kind of what the the defining point of a rebound session should be. It should be 30 to 40 minutes. You should mm. feel more mobile. You should feel more energized and you should feel good when you're finished with it. And if you did the protocol properly, then you'll find that that's the case. So, you know, I think most people, your average population person, Twice, twice a week of what we call high intensity and twice a week of rebound training. Hmm. Four days a week is what most people who have normal jobs and live normal lives, they're going to benefit tremendously more from that than trying to go into a gym for 45 minutes an hour and kill themselves every day. 
just or I mean, what practically happens is they go four times a week and do four mediocre workouts. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they, yeah. they're smart enough not to try to kill themselves. They don't have that extreme type A yeah. category of those people, but they're going in there well-meaning, going to CrossFit, they get a little bit of, uh, you know, the, the stress hormone buzz, the endorphins, yeah. um, but they're never showing their true potential, nor are they recovering. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, it kind of goes back to the whole high-low. I mean, it's, it's push your body to, to, you know, enough level for it to stimulate improvement and fitness and then let it recover and then do that you know over and over again versus like you said these four mediocre workouts where you never really go hard enough to push yourself to get better but you never really let your body recover from it either so you're kind of stuck in this middle ground so um, you know, I, I like the idea of, of a red line workout which i call your higher intensity mm-hmm. workout and a rebound workout which helps your body recover mm-hmm. from it. i like to sequence, sequence it that way so do your hard and high intensity hard training session one day follow it up with a rebound workout maybe take a day off and repeat that for your average person you know two two of those High-intensity redline workouts and two rebound workouts is going to be tremendously beneficial. They're going to actually enjoy going to the gym because they're really only pushing themselves and feeling fatigued twice. They're going to they're going to feel better after rebound workouts, and they're going to feel like they can sustain that over time. Which is the other thing is mm-hmm. most people's schedules are you know mm-hmm. they are what they are, and most people aren't going to be in the gym six days a week that work 40 or 50, 60 hours of kids. You know, four days a week I feel like is a reasonable goal that most mm-hmm. of them can hit, and particularly if the rebound training sessions are a little bit of shorter end and uh, you know, I think for your for your average person in the street, that sort of schedule is is re- reasonable and it's maintainable and it's going it's going to deliver benefits. What about the other three days? Uh, I mean, be active. You know, right. find, find move around. Move around. Yeah. You know, if you have some sport or some hobby you enjoy doing, I mean, go do that. And I think just just you know, relax and enjoy your life. That sounds like way to uh, revolutionize a lot of the problems in the fitness industry. And then. Uh, due to the nature of this uh, rebound training, it's kind of sophisticated. It's it's specific, and you have some protocols. So maybe the personal trainer could become an expert in that, and then justify their existence. Uh, you need help when you're going on the high intensity stuff, but generally we kind of go in and think, oh, I'm just going to spin on the bike for a half hour today. I don't need to pay my trainer to sit next to me. Yep. Um, but maybe we're going to the next level here. Uh, no, I, I agree 100, percent and that's something um, you know I've thought a lot about. And you're training people to do this yeah, right exactly yeah. so you know we've yeah. got about a thousand plus coaches have been through yeah. my own conditioning certifications that is one of the next things we're working on is is a, a gym trainer coaching version of morpheus where a personal trainer or yoga instructor anybody could see all this data from any one of their clientele so they could see their sleep they could see their training from before they could see their activity and then they could take them to rebound workout again based on their own heart rate zones their own uh, recovery levels so personalizing again Think not just personalizing high intensity, but personalizing recovery is is really a, you know a key component of this. So yeah. Figuring out you know your heart rate for recovery might be totally different than mine. Maybe you're older and you're in better shape, or who knows, you're more predominant strength athlete. We're going to have different recovery zones. It's not all going to be the exact same. Yeah. So I think teaching trainers, teaching coaches, you know, and group fitness instructors how to build these programs into their gyms, into their classes is hugely important. I'm actually working with uh, Lifetime Fitness right now to to look at doing that on a large scale, and they've got hundred thousand plus people that go through their PT program a year. So I think you're, you're seeing that gyms and trainers are starting to realize, wait a minute, like beating people up every day is not the best long-term client retention uh, idea in the world. So do we really want our, our people just going to a float tank and not spending time in our gym? No, we want people in our gym. 
So I think you're seeing these gyms and trainers trying to figure out, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> or we better get yeah. some float tanks in here. <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah. We need I mean, something. Debbie Potts' gym down down the road in Bellevue, she's getting uh, infrared saunas in there. She yeah. has infrared saunas and the, the, the bouncy trampoline. Oh, yeah. Is that called, re- I mean, don't they call that rebound workout or something? That. Yeah, something maybe that's like part, that. of, part of your rebound yeah. recovery. It for the. Be. It's supposed to be for the lymphatic system, yeah, you know. Yeah, I've, I've yeah. heard about it. I haven't, I haven't tried it. But yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I think all those tools and modalities, and there's nothing wrong with float tanks, and those are the good things to use as well. Um, but I think your average trainer doesn't have access to that. Your average person's not going to spend, you know, $300 a month doing float tank stuff. So, but they can get in the gym and they can use the equipment that's already there. So I think those sorts of, you know, saunas and, and float tanks and meditation, those are all great things. Um, but again, you know, on a practical level, you're not going to do that once a week or twice a week. Most people just can't afford it or, it's, or mm-hmm. they're spending time doing it. And I think there's just as much or sometimes more benefit in using training as a tool because we can accomplish a lot in terms of, the respiratory function, blood flow, and strength development, and all these sorts of things, and uh, in that format, so you know, it's it's a it's a powerful thing. I think we need to get more more coaches and trainers out there excited about it and, and doing it. And the funny thing is, as soon as they try it themselves, they're like, "Wait a minute, I feel feel yeah. way better." And when they feel that that change and that improvement in the, in how they feel because they've started to focus on recovery, then it's much easier to get your clients to do the same thing. Okay, I'm 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 intrigued, man, because like to date here. Uh, in my life, recovery has mainly, for me, been about uh, laying around. And a lot of it's due to feeling, uh, you know, abnormal level of fatigue at rest. I'm not at my best today. I feel like crap at my desk. And then I'm sore because I did a lot of loading with a sprint workout or something. And so I make the decision that maybe the best thing for me is a walk around the block or a bike ride that lasts 15 minutes just putzing around. Yep. And I'm, I'm trying to make an informed decision here. Yeah, I mean, but I is there a way that, you know, maybe I could explore doing, like, like you mentioned in the article, doing the deadlift, only the raise, and then dropping the weight so you're not, you're not uh, inviting any more additional soreness? Yep. And it's, again, it's, yeah, there's, there's absolutely a way. It's, it's the, the template put together. It's, just, it's literally just being strategic about how you approach training recovery. So again, our, our rebound training sessions should be 30 to 40 minutes. They're breathing exercises, some cardiovascular work in a lower intensity, and then some strength training along with the cool down. I mean, it's, it's you know. Get the sweat going. Get the you sweat get some going, get the mobility increased, get the breathing function working. And so you're saying, hey, parasympathetic, come on, come talk on. to me exactly. because I'm not stressing myself, yep. but I am moving my body and doing all these genetically optimal behaviors. Yeah, exactly. And then yeah. there's also some, some intelligence behind how we do some of the interval training in the workouts because one of the things I've discovered over the years is that being able to control your heart rate is a skill, right? Being able to go up, let's say bring your heart rate to, let's say, just under 150, and then bring it back to 130 as quickly as possible. Some of that's a fitness level thing, because the more aerobically fit you are, the faster it's come down. Some of it's also just a skill, a learned skill of being able to turn off that stress response and mm-hmm. relax quickly. Mm-hmm. So part of how we've uh, you know, built rebound training intervals in there, I call them recovery intervals or tempo intervals, whatever you want to call them, is driving your heart rate up to a certain zone and then allowing it to come back down as quickly as possible. And if you can learn that technique of bringing your heart rate down quickly, you're essentially teaching your body how to shut off that stress response. Uh-huh. So I'm sitting there at work. I'm so this is, a, this, is a, this is a challenge you're doing oh, during yeah. the workout. Yeah, absolutely. And you're looking yeah. at your watch how and making yourself relax, like a competition. It Love is. it. Yeah, it's a skill. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a distinct skill in learning how to shut off that stress response and recover. So you'll find people initially suck at it, and they'll right. party, will kind of sit there and sit there and sit there. Eventually, once you get much better at it, you'll see your heart rate dropping extremely quickly. So we'll, we'll teach people essentially over time, 
to be able to change our heart rate dynamically. I, I call it dynamic energy control for lack of a better uh -huh. term. It's being able to control that heart rate and control your energy expenditure. So if you can do that in the gym, you can start to learn how to do that outside the gym. So maybe I'm frustrated at work, uh -huh. maybe I'm pissed off about traffic. If I can learn how to shut off that stress and I can learn how to recover from that, I'm gonna be able to bring my heart rate back down significantly better, keep it from going up and avoid those you know, inflammatory markers being produced and be able to be better. Lingering. Yeah, just be able to cope with life better, right? So I think there's really value in rebound training, not just from the, the workout standpoint, but from developing that skill set of, hey, I, don't, I can control my stress better, I can control my heart rate, I can control my response. And the, you know, if you look at a lot of athletes uh, that perform at the highest levels, they're very, very good at it, right? They're very good at being able to handle the stress of competition. Mm, sure. Because they've developed that skill and right. they've developed that ability to not let the moment overtake them and right. to be able to just relax like we talked about in the beginning here and just handle the situation. So I think there's value in, in, in using training for that specific purpose for your average, you know, your average person. They can develop the ability to turn off stress and bring their heart rate back down and cope with situations better. It's, it's going to have a profound impact on not just, you know, the gym workout, but everything happens outside of it as well. So in the rebound workout, this component of doing a little interval, but it's not really going to stress you too much, but you're just trying to spike that heart rate and then work really hard to get it down yep. is, a, is a... Yeah, we do like 10, to, as you call them the tempos, like 10 to 12 seconds. Um, if, we, again, if we're using Morpheus, we have a blue zone. So we try to get up to the blue zone in 10 to 12 seconds. And then we have usually about a 60 second kind of slower active rest. And if someone's really uh, inexperienced or they're out of shape, just have them slowly breathe, relax, stop completely. Once they get in better shape, they can actually walk and they can get better recovering through you know, movement and being able to continue the exercise at much lo lower intensities. But uh, you know, it's breathing, it's posture, it's all these things so they can learn how to control their heart rate. So if, usually we start with that again, it's you know, 10, 12 seconds of, a, of a, a moderate intensity and then bring it back down as quickly as possible and then repeat that. And once you can do that, then you can start doing you know, much more complicated versions of it. But the, the whole key is, can I drive my heart rate up and then can I drive it back down? Can I drive it back up and then can I drive mm -hmm. it back down? And you can get better and better at it over time. It's not just a, a, you know, a fitness level, it's a skill thing. It's an actual thing you can practice and get much better at. Uh, so you're going to guarantee that I walk out of that gym feeling better than when I started on a rebound session? Oh, absolutely. Even if I'm trash from the previous workout? The more trash you are, the more likely you are to actually feel better because you've uh -huh. got some blood flow and okay. circulation. I'm going to try it. So, and then yeah. I guess the, <clears throat> the, the caveat is also if I'm in that kind of state after that hard workout, did I overdo it? Especially as an old guy, I'm, I'm feeling too sore, too tired. Do I rethink right? that session? I mean... Again, if you're tracking recovery with, with something, you'll have you should have a pretty good gauge of that. But it's it's you know it's more about ha how frequently is that happening? You know, doing it once, you know, well maybe once a week is not a huge deal if you're able to recover from that. Yeah. But doing it consistently, then you know, absolutely you've done too much. Yeah, I think most most people in my years of looking at data and talking to people can handle two what I would call really you know true high intensity workouts. People at the peak of their fitness levels in their 20s, the genetic you know marvels the world can often get away with three. But your average person who's not a world champion or something, who's not in their 20s, you know, who's not on drugs, the average person, <laughs> you know, twice a week is what most people can really push their body to, uh, you know, to limit up and be able to recover from. If you start doing this three, four days a week of trying to get there, you end up, like you talked about, with four mediocre workouts. So, you know, I think most people can handle twice a week of trying to really get outside their comfort zone and push themselves. But they've got to give themselves two, three days in between those sessions to truly recover from it and you know it's it's 
it's funny, I don't, I don't want to harp on the drugs thing at all, but the reason people take drugs is why? Because it allows them to recover. That's right. what drugs are for, that's what drugs do. So it just shows you the benefits of, of building your training and building your lifestyle around, hey, I don't want to just break my body down. I need to get my body to recover as well as I could. Now, I don't want to use growth hormone, testosterone, all these performance-enhancing drugs, but I want to do things that I can use naturally. I can use rebound training. I can use nutrition. I can use you know, sleep and meditation. I can use all these things that aren't you know, performance-enhancing drugs. They're just a natural part of training and, and being intelligent about it. So... Um, you know, I think we just have to recognize the importance of recovery is where things actually happen. It's where our body improves. It's where our strength gets built. It's where our cardiovascular system gets remodeled. It doesn't happen in the gym. It happens in between the sessions. I mean, nothing's in the gym except for that stimulation. It's telling the body, hey, do something about this. It's only when we're recovering that the body actually is making ourselves, you know, more fit or stronger or whatever the case may be. So that is where the actual gains come. It's not in the gym. It's outside the gym when those things happen. And those take energy. They take energy. That's the, yeah. that's the, that's the breakthrough, man. I, I, you come with the magic every time. I'm so glad to meet with you again, and I want listeners to go back and listen to our other show on Primal Blueprint channel, I believe. But Joel Jameson doing great stuff. Eightweeksout.com. Yep, eightweeksout, yeah. Eight, the uh, number eightweeksout.com. Yep, there's the article, How to Train to Recover Faster on there, and there's a, a free rebound train template of those of you who want to try it. You can just... Oh, we got to try it. Go through there. Try so, it. Yeah, I just created a, a whole download. You can just go through a sample workout and I show you the exercises. Uh, we have some videos on there to show you how to do it. So, again, try it for yourself. And, and I guarantee you, the, the more you start to walk out of the gym, like, wow, I feel, I feel good. I feel better. The more you'll start to be like, this is something I need to start doing. And, again, it doesn't even have to be in the gym. And sometimes I will go on a 20-minute bike ride, but I'll do my breathing exercises mm. before my bike ride. I'll ride from the gym to the end of the trail and back, and I'll do a few sets of deadlifts and cool down and then call it good. I mean, there's, there's lots of ways to incorporate this sort of stuff. You're picking up the deadlift and then dropping it? Yeah, I do like yeah. that, exactly. And so, uh, quickly, that's because the raising phase, is that called? The concentric. Uh, concentric yeah. phase is not tearing up muscle fibers. This is the eccentric load, the eccentric, the, the lowering, tends, the to lowering. Be, tends to cause more of the muscle soreness and the muscle damage. If anyone's ever done a true eccentric workout, you know how sore that tends to make you it just tends to be more of where uh, the muscles resisting stretching and that tends to be where more damage to the yeah. muscles actually done so if we're trying to get the the benefits of stimulating the nervous system but less fatigue or soreness that's going to go along with it you know those concentric only type exercises tend to be really beneficial for that i thought those guys were just showing off when they drop the weight you know <laughs> and then they drop it and make a big noise and everyone has well, to I mean, look over yeah honestly it's a lot of times it's because you can do more of them right because if you if you're not spending as much energy in the, the deceleration of it then you can tend to do more reps of the concentric so they, they have their purpose Joel Jameson, great times. Thank you so much. Keep no up problem. the good work. Go visit the website and read those those landmark articles like, uh, uh, what was it, All, All Pain, No, no Gain, gain. Yep. and then the uh, the rebound stuff that you can download, and then we'll just dig further into this. I'm, I'm all over that. I'm going to go try it, man. Thank awesome, you man. so Give much. Give it a shot. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hey, let's talk about Tribali Foods. If you're super busy and you want a convenient meal to make in a short time, but you don't want to compromise great taste, gosh, doesn't that sound like a commercial? <laughs> it is a commercial, but it's for something super awesome. And these are frozen organic beef and chicken patties and sliders with awesome creative flavors like Mediterranean, chipotle, umami with the mushroom mixed in, and also these sliders, chicken apple and pork sage. What you do is you take this frozen box, cut with the scissors, the beautiful little pre-made patty, 
drop it on the pan, cook it up, and it's ready in a few minutes. And this company is a real, live, authentic, girl power, entrepreneur, small business success story, home kitchen inspired. Welcome everyone to the new world where the big multinational beasts that make garbage food are getting knocked off by people who care about what they eat and about their health. And Trebelli was started by my friend Angela Mavridis in Southern California, lifelong family restaurant business member. She was a vegetarian for 35 years, and one day she had a steak, felt great, and started on this path of experimenting with creative ground beef recipes and flavorings in her kitchen. All her friends loved it. She was buying tons of ground meat from Whole Foods, and they're like, hey, what are you doing with this? So she brought them in a little sample. They loved it. They flew her to Texas to meet with the national buyer, and they said, literally, start a business, and we will place a large order. So this is a wonderful small business success story with love and attention to everything that goes into this product. Delicious, totally keto-friendly. Go look at the pork mini sliders. We're talking one gram of carbs, 11 grams of protein, 17 grams of fat, and you get 15% off. Just visit tribalifoods.com, T-R-I-B-A-L-I, and enter Get Over Yourself in the coupon field. And you are good to go. Shipped directly to your door, cold packed, frozen stuff, thawed out in a day, and you have quick dinner, quick lunch. And also available at finer stores like Whole Foods, Whole Dudes, Nugget, Natural Grocers, Super Targets, and launching into Walmart as well. Good job, go girl. Trebellifoods.com. Let's talk about probiotics from Integro Health. Do you want me to sing the messages? Nah. But probiotics are an extremely important concept. Hopefully you're all in on the values, the benefits of nourishing a healthy gut microbiome so you can flourish in life. And that's the name of Integro's product, Flourish, a unique, extremely potent living liquid probiotic. Yes, it's liquid form. How is it different from other probiotics we usually see in pills? This is the message from Integro. Microbes continue to thrive and metabolize in their own milieu. Do you like when companies use the word milieu to describe their product? I do. These include short-chain fatty acids, bioactive peptides, amino acids, enzymes, and minerals. The liquid base makes it acid-stable, so microbes can survive the stomach environment and transit to the lower GI tract for integration to give you a healthy gut microbiome. There's 11 different strains in this thing, carefully hand-cultivated in the laboratory with precision to deliver 8 billion total CFU. Why take probiotics? Come on, you have to ask. It's going to strengthen your immune function, reduce systemic inflammation, the root cause of all disease, improve digestion, promote bowel regularity, relieve gas and bloating, get you going again after illness or antibiotic use. That's me because I first got this shipment the very day I returned home from a Mexican vacation and had a stomach illness once again. What a bummer. So sad because I love going down south, but I needed to repair and return to action quickly. So I started guzzling this stuff and had a wonderful return to health. I'm a very enthusiastic user. 
and will be over the long run because I need all the help I can get. I don't know about you when we're talking about our routine usage of antibiotics, the stress we put on our system and in the environment every single day. I especially notice my gut health is compromised when I engage in overly intensive athletic training, have trouble recovering. My gut is the first thing to go. So this is my go-to product, the Flourish Probiotic in liquid form. Try it yourself. I love the delicious root beer float flavor. Just kidding, man. This stuff is no funny business. This is the real deal. It's very potent. It tastes fine. It goes down okay, but no root beer float flavor. Sorry. Take it. You'll love it. Go look at IntegroHealth.com for more information and to order shipped directly to your door in its unique liquid form. Flourish! Hey, this is Brad Kearns. Thank you for listening to the show. You know, this show is fairly new, so it would be a huge, massive help if you could visit iTunes for a second or wherever you consume podcasts and leave a positive review for the show. This is how shows attract more attention and get new listeners so I can brainwash them to subscribe for life with this wonderful, compelling content. Thank you so much for doing that. I know it's a big hassle, but if you do it... And then you go over and email me, getoveryourselfpodcast at gmail.com. I will mail you a dollar. No, I won't do that, man. That would be a huge hassle. Talk about a hassle. But you know what I'll do? I'll thank you from the bottom of my heart, and I'll enter you into a drawing, put your address on there too, and I'll do like 10 grand prizes, something cool like Primal Kitchen Extra Virgin Avocado Oil to drizzle on your salads, something, I promise you. Thank you so much for leaving a review. It's time to spread the word about the Get Over Yourself podcast. And speaking of advertising, I promise you at all times... I will be talking about only stuff that's super cool, awesome, that I use and appreciate in daily life and would recommend to you or think that might help you. I know you can always push that 30-second forward button and skip the ads, but I want to do some cool stuff. I appreciate you listening if it's value to you. And please, participate in the show. Send me your constructive feedback or otherwise suggestions, comments to that wonderful, lengthy email, but unforgettable Get over yourself podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. This is Brad Kearns. Ba-da-ba-ba. Ba-da-ba-ba. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba.